Welcome to PwC's Tax Readiness Podcast Series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Readiness Webcast Series, held on September 26, 2019, Section 451 Proposed Regulations, the All Events Test under New Section 451B. The panelists for the webcast were George Manusos, a partner in the Federal Tax Services Practice, Christy Turgeon, a partner in the Accounting Methods Services Practice, Michael Bauer, a director in the International Tax Services Practice, and Kate Abdu, a director in the Federal Tax Services Practice. This excerpt consists of a discussion on special rules and issues within these regulations. Take a listen. All right, Kate, let me hand it back to you to go over some other special rules. And then, Michael, we're going to get to you with a lot of the financial product examples and rules that we have in these regulations as well. So, Kate, let me hand it over to you here. Okay, so another uh, question, I suppose, that's come up as, as part of these new rules is, well, what happens when I have a different year for AFS purposes than I do for tax purposes? How do I apply the AFS inclusion rule to determine how much gross income or revenue was recognized for AFS purposes for my tax year. Um, So the proposed regulations provide three methods that taxpayers can apply when they have a different book year than tax year. First, uh, you could apply the accounting principles used to create your AFS as as if the reporting periods coincided. So for example, the proposed regulations tell you you could do something like an interim closing of the books. That's the first method. Um, The second possible method is to include a pro rata portion of revenue for each financial accounting year that includes part of a tax year. Um, And that would include making a, quote, reasonable estimate if the AFS for part of the tax year isn't available by the extended federal due date of the tax return. And the final possible method is to use the revenue reported on your AFS for the financial accounting year ending within the tax year if the financial accounting year ends five or more months after the tax year. So that third option is only available if you have a financial accounting year that ends at least five months after your tax year. Um, One thing to note here is that this is considered a method of accounting. So whatever method you choose, you do have to continue to apply that consistently until you receive permission um, under the normal accounting method rules to to change that method. Keep in mind, at least for now, all method changes are automatic. We're going to hope that if people are doing this, there's a five-year rule, right, that I can only change it once automatically within a five-year period. People are flip-flopping. You might have non-automatic changes. So we're going to have to see if they waive scope that scope rule for this particular type of change or people well, may have a need to go back and forth or right. desire. And I think that's a good a good point you raise because the the method change is automatic to adopt the proposed regulations right, right now, but right. it's not totally clear, well, once I've adopted the proposed regulations, anyway. if I make changes within those, is that automatic or not? And so hopefully, you know, guidance will come out once In the, the next three years, that five-year rule has been waived. Correct, though, for right? now. So, right, yes. right. Okay, I'm a little okay bit for of now. Yeah. Anyway, that's right. But um, yes, not, still lots of questions, yeah. right? Okay, another special rule, if you have adjustments or write-downs to deferred revenue, in the year that you have that adjustment or that write-down, it's considered that you're recognizing that write-down as revenue in that year. Um, So, for example, in 2018, if the taxpayer contracts to perform services in 2019 and 20 and receives $100 prepayments, or assuming they got an advance payment of $100 and they're booking deferred revenue for that whole amount, um, in 2019, the taxpayer writes down its deferred revenue to 90 um, by charging $10 to retained earnings. 
In 2019, the taxpayer also recognizes 50 in revenue. So in applying the AFS inclusion rule, it's not just the 50, you would be subject to picking up that entire $60 because the $10 um, adjustment you made to retained earnings, all of that didn't go to the book PL in 19. Under this special rule, it's considered to be recognized in your 19 AFS revenue. Yeah. So again, hate, hate to keep reiterating the same point, but you need to understand what the book accounting is. Another example, this is looking at revenues. This is looking at right. any adjustments and doing your retained earnings schedule. There used to be a schedule in the return. That reconciles your retained earnings. You need to look at what are the other adjustments. This is going to be one of those other adjustments. I thought we were going to be finished with retained earnings adjustments after 606. Apparently not. I guess not. I think they continue. And I think that what's also relevant here is that it's they're recognizing that you can actually use the deferral method. I think there was some debate if it goes to revenue in the next year. If the revenue the second year goes to retained earnings, is that still allowing me to use the deferral method. Yeah, so. That's yep. right. And we'll talk about that when we In when we next, have the 451C yes. webcast. Yes. Um, we'll get into that. Yep. We'll... Christian, I want to go back to something that you had pointed out earlier about um, where we can have book tax disconformity. Transactions treated one way for books, a different way for tax. One of the ones on that list you mentioned was deposit versus conduit. Can you talk a little bit about the implications of that rule when we talk about beat planning? Yes, definitely. Um, so this is a very significant um, exception. I, I think we believed that would be the case if it's not income for tax, it shouldn't be subject to the all events test, but there was obviously concern when book is recognizing revenue, how broad is this is the provision. So the, the exception in that um, change in characterization provision that if, if book is not treating it as income because it's a conduit, for example, um, you don't, it's okay that, that I'm sorry, if tax is not treating it as income because it's a conduit, it's okay that book treats it as income. Um, that's very significant to a lot of the beat planning that we're seeing in the market right now. Um, beat will make uh, certain payments to foreign-related parties um, be non-deductible. Um, and so there's a lot of, uh, of reviewing of contracts and arrangements um, to, to see if a, a, a particular arrangement is actually not income and deductions to a U.S. party but maybe that U.S. party is just a conduit, in which case they have no income and no deductions for money flowing through them for other customers or the U.S. group to foreign-related parties. And if they're not income and deductions, there's not a non-deductible beat payment. So there's definitely a lot of, of, um, of market activity around conduit, and I think it's very helpful to know that these rules don't apply. Yep. Great. All right, Michael, you've sat there patiently. <laughs> We are looking forward to now, there's a whole set of rules on debt instruments, correct, right? Correct. That is your specialty area. Why don't you help us out it, in it understanding is. that side of the house? So, so I, think, I think Christy teed up earlier that <laughs> under the statute itself, um, certain special methods of accounting are accepted. Um, the rule specifically said that my special method, the OID rules, are not special. Specifically what it said is that part five of subchapter P isn't, uh, doesn't include special, uh, isn't a special method of accounting. And so the question that um, taxpayers with respect to debt instruments had was, okay, how broad is this and how is it going to apply? So the legislative history helped us a little bit, and it said a couple of things. I mean, you could tell the focus under the legislative history is that 451B was really aimed at credit card fees, or at least that's what you could interpret from it. Um, some things in legislative history, again, Chris, you mentioned this earlier, that can become really important in my world is the first one is, is that Legislative history made clear that 451B 
um, does not change the rules with respect to when income is realized. So if income isn't yet realized, um, you don't have to recognize it under 451B. That's going to be really important for market discount. And the second one it says is that if 451B applies, the special rules for OID and market discount don't apply. So maybe we step back just for one minute. So when I talk about OID, what I'm really talking about is really any return on a debt instrument other than like the periodic coupon payments. So it could be pick interest, it could be that I had to pay a $2 fee to the lenders up front as like a financing fee. It could be a lot of different things, but it's an additional yield to the lenders. Um, that is generally accrued under a sort of a constant yield method, but it's accrued by both parties over the life of the instrument. Um, when I talk about market discount, a market discount generally arises when debt is purchased in the secondary market at a discount. So if debt is issued initially for 100 cents on the dollar, I come into the market and buy it for 95. I bought it at a discount. Market discount is the difference between the, the $5 discount between the, my purchase price and the, um, the loan amount. Now that is also accrued over the life of the instrument, but unless I make a special election, that isn't picked up into income currently. Instead, if I receive a payment, or I sell the loan, only then do I pick up the market discount. So you can see it's a realization-based recognition provision. So some open questions that we had prior to the proposed regulations was, is first, does 451B apply to market discount, given that it really is picked up on a realization basis? The IRS um, uh, thankfully issued this notice, 2018-80, suggesting that no, it's not going to apply. They didn't also address de minimis OID, but because that's picked up on a realization basis, presumably the sort of same principles apply. But there are a lot of other complexities, like OID is accrued over the life of the instrument. Or what happens if some of the OID is picked up under 451B early? Does that affect my accrual schedule? And so forth. So when under the statute alone, we had a lot of complexity in the debt world. So within the 451B proposed regs, as we already discussed, I think you teed it up, uh, Kate, there is a definition of special method of accounting. And what it specifically says is that a special method does not include, I'm gonna come back to that parenthetical, um, the OID rules, the market discount rules, the de minimis OID rules, the market discount rules, a lot of those things that otherwise would have been in part five of chapter P, subchapter P, um, they're not special methods of accounting. However, they carved out what's called specified fees. So specified fees are fees that are treated as creating or increasing OID for tax purposes, but are not treated as creating or increasing OID for book purposes. So the idea being that tax is allowing you to accrue that as OID over the life of the instrument, but presumably GAAP is having you pick it up currently. Now you can see that the focus here isn't on whether you know, the proper method for GAAP purposes is that it's picked up currently. It just focuses on was it included um, currently in their AFS. Um, specifically called out our credit card fees. And again, I think this was, this was the main focus of the, you know, the legislative history. You see references to credit card fees. When you read the preamble, they focus on credit card fees. Um, credit card fees are actually referred to as specified credit card fees. And they call out three specific fees, late fees, cash advance fees, and interchange fees, as examples of fees to which 451B applies. But one question I have is, what else does it apply to? Because again, in order for 451B to apply, it has to be a fee that is being accrued as OID for tax purposes, but is being taken into income on the AFS currently. One example I think that we'll see somewhat frequently is when I modify a debt, I have to pay the banks, always. Banks always collect first, right? So I have to pay the banks five bucks, three bucks for agreeing to make changes. Maybe it's some really in, you know, in, insignificant change. Um, 
if that isn't enough of a change, whatever I did to create new debt for tax purposes, um, what I generally do, what generally people generally do for tax purposes is they amortize that fee over the life of the instrument. Um, for financial accounting purposes, I think they generally pick that up. Maybe it's just out of ease, um, but generally I think it's picked up currently. So you can see that being as one example, um, but I think it's gonna require 451B is for us to um, you know, talk to the people, you know, the financial statement you know, people and figure out what, where are these disconnects that, that we maybe not have been focusing on before. And presumably they would be a deferred tax liability on the financial statements. I mean, I think for the most part we've been, mm -hmm. in our world, looking at what is your deferred tax liabilities for revenue because that's perhaps where we need to worry if the yep. rule is going to require you because you can't recognize to later than book anymore. Right. Yeah. So yep. I agree. I'm not yeah. sure if that's how they're going to come out or not. But. A couple, there's a couple of uh, special sort of ordering type rules, and these are, um, you know, some of them are based generally in the legislative history to 451B, the statute. Um, one, like I, like I mentioned earlier, if 451B applies, the rules of 451B apply before the OID rules. You have to figure out which one applies first, and, and 451B uh, trumps. The other one, and this is an interesting rule, and it's a smart rule that they added, and it deals with this, like, how did 451B affect my OID schedule? What they said, they added, they're going to propose this new reg, 1275-2L, and what it's going to say is essentially is, if the fee uh, is treated as um, subject to 451B, it's not treated as creating or increasing OID. So when I actually have to apply the OID rules to that debt instrument, I'm only looking at things to which 451B doesn't apply. So I get to sort of carve that out. And then I don't have to deal with what happens if you know, that, that fee is picked up currently. How does that affect my OID schedule and so forth? So I thought that was a smart addition to the regs. Later we'll talk about the um, the uh, uh, effective date rules, which I think are really yeah. quite fascinating here. But. Yeah. yeah. All right, Kate, let me hand it back to you. A few other rules, special rules here, multi-year contracts, and then how do I allocate transaction price when I have kind of a multi-element deliverable? Yep. Um, so with respect to multi-year contracts, the proposed regulations um, provide that you take a cumulative approach in determining how much income you have to pick up under that AFS inclusion rule, which I think we generally feel like is the right answer. Um, and on the next slide, we'll walk through an example that illustrates how that works. In terms of allocating transaction price to performance obligations, you generally have to follow the way that the, the books allocates that transaction price. Um, keep in mind here, though, that you, you, as we've been talking about, your transaction price might end up being different than um, the book transaction price if you are able to exclude contingent income or, um, or something like that. But generally speaking, you do have to follow the allocation method that, that book uses. contingent that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, and, and again, having to get close with your financial accounting folks, financial accounting may not even be privy to what these tax rules are, right? Financial accounting wants to accelerate as much revenue as possible. If I have four different deliverables, they're going to allocate revenue to those deliverables that result in revenue now. You know, there's some planning that goes on there, right? It's all subjective, presumably, how they allocate their revenue. The more you allocate revenue to later transactions, the better off you're going to be for tax purposes. So it's going to be that push-pull between how much revenue now for books versus can I defer any for books which would allow me to defer for tax by putting it to transactions or obligations that haven't yet been performed. And I think they tied performance obligation. I believe that intent was just to mirror the 606 language. Right. So presumably if it's a performance obligation for book, whatever they've identified, that's what we'll do for tax. Yep. 
All right, so this is the example that illustrates that cumulative approach. Um, so the facts here in 2019, D contracts with a customer to provide services over four years for $100,000. And pursuant to that agreement, D will re uh, receive $25,000 each year. And we're assuming that D is not electing the deferral method for advance payments um, that we'll talk about on the next webcast. Uh, so D includes in its AFS for year one, 2019, it receives 25000 but includes in AFS revenue of 50000 And so, again, general rule, right, earlier of earned, due, received, or recognized in the AFS, we would have to pick up fifty in 2019. Um, in 2020, another 25000 is received, nothing picked up for AFS purposes. If you looked at 2020 in a vacuum, you would think that you'd have to pick up 25,000 because you've received 25,000. Um, but cumulatively, you've received 50,000 and you've picked up 50,000 into taxable income so far because of the 50 that you picked up in 19. So under that cumulative approach, um, you don't have to pick up anything in 2020 because that 25 relates to the 50 you've already recognized. In 2021, another 25,000 is received. AFS uh, recognizes only 20,000 of that. So again, remember we're assuming that D is not on the deferral method. So cumulative, cumulatively, they've re received 75,000. Um, but for AFS purposes now, only 70,000 has been picked up. Um, but because 75,000 has been received, we have to pick up that additional 25. And then in 2022, the final 25,000 is received and books picks up 30. Now we only have to pick up 25 because we've cumulatively already recognized the 75 remaining. Another kind of inherent in this example is one contract by contract analysis. Right. Like this cumulative approach is great, but you're, you're going to have to do that, I believe, at the contract level. And, and each year, like in, in 2019, you're creating an unbilled receivable. In 2020, you're creating an advance payment. And, and those have different implications. I mean, in this instance, it didn't because they're not deferring advance payments. But it, it, to the extent that you have unbilled or advance payments, the rules are different. And so you, it, it does require, unfortunately, a pretty detailed analysis. And, and to George's point, knowing what your books are doing. Right, right. <laughs> well, and this, this example also shows that it's not a true book tax conformity rule, right? right? You may have right. instances where tax is going to be different from book and right. maybe in an unfavorable way. Right. So <laughs> Most we're likely in an unfavorable way. Yeah. Right. <laughs> we have book tax conformity right. this webcast. Um, okay, so accounting methods and changes. So the proposed regulations provide um, three specific areas that will be considered method changes for tax. First, if there's a restatement um, of revenue in the AFS that changes the timing of including that item in revenue for book, that's considered a method change. If there's a change in method of recognizing revenue in the AFS that maybe doesn't implicate a restatement but um, will change the method going forward, that's a change in method for tax. And then if there's a, as we spoke about earlier, if there's a change in method for determining um, revenue when you have a different year for book and tax purposes, again, you have those three methods and a, a switch from one of those methods to another of those methods is considered a change in method. Um, and like we mentioned right now, we have an automatic method change uh, to adopt the, the proposed regulations that we'll, we'll discuss in more detail in the next webcast. All right, effective date and early application. So we're finally here. 
Um, so generally, the, the proposed regs are uh, proposed to be effective for tax years beginning after they're finalized. Um, so like we spoke about, that's probably going to be in 2021 for calendar year taxpayers, assuming they get finalized in 20. Um, for specified fees, except specified credit card fees, the regulations are um, generally going to be effective for tax years beginning a year after publication of the final regulations. So then 2022, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? Um, Taxpayers can choose to rely on the proposed regulations until they're finalized. So for tax years beginning after 2017, if you choose to rely on the proposed regs, though, you have to uh, you have to apply all applicable rules. So you can't cherry pick um, the provisions that you want to rely on and then ignore the provisions you don't. Um, there's no reliance for specified fees that are not specified credit card fees. Am I yeah, saying that? well, I think that well. The IRS has been getting questions for years about what is OID for tax purposes, what is not, what type of fees are. I mean, they have so many change in accounting methods in front of them. Is this a fee, OID? Is this not? And um, they don't know. And so they have something on their priority guidance plan. Was they going to try to address this? And so if you read the preamble, they said, this rule just doesn't apply until we can figure out what OID is. And when we do, we'll tell you, and then we're going to apply it type thing. So they want to put a pause, it sounds like, on it until okay. they can figure out what that bucket so is still, comprised of. Still working through. They're still working through it. Okay. Yeah. Um, so you so presumably there would be consistency. I mean, I think the, the income tax and accounting people have defined OID for them, right? Mm -hmm. By, <laughs> if it's not deferred for book, it's, I guess, in your rules, which presumably means it's OID, but maybe not. So Yeah. But, but that's, I mean, that's what they're trying to do. I think that's the idea there between the, the distinction. Okay. Good. Um, oh, no. Oops. That was it. That was it. I'm okay. Done. Okay. Uh, Folks, back-to-back -back polling questions, then we'll wrap up with a couple key takeaways here. First one, which issue under the proposed regulations is your company most concerned about? Um, we should really have an all the above. I don't know why we didn't have an all the above. It's all fun, yeah. yeah. Um, Michael, let me go back to you on the effective date that Kate talked about. Specified fees, you can't rely on the proposed regs. So if I'm a taxpayer with specified fees, where does that leave me? And it's interesting that they put that in there because the government has a memo that says they will not argue against a proposed regulation. Right. So even though you can't rely on it, if you rely on it, the government can't argue against it. So if I'm a taxpayer with specified fees, what's your advice? Where, where do I look to? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think there's a couple of different ways you could approach it. I mean, one maybe one way you could, but it has baggage, is to just early adopt the proposed regs. Because we know the proposed regs define special methods of accounting and carve out the OID rules, except for specified fees, but we, you know, that's, that's a TBD group of things that we're going to find out later. But of course, you guys have been talking about there are good reasons and bad reasons, and it, you have, it brings the whole package with it, so maybe that's not something you want to do. But you just teed up a really good point. Like another, another way you might look at this is you can, see the pro you can read the proposed regulations as just the IRS's interpretation, Treasury's interpretation of what specified method of accounting or special method of accounting is. And so maybe the, you, know, you could say this, this, these regs reflect a reasoned interpretation of the statute, and so I'm going to interpret the statute consistent with them. Same way. Yeah, so that, that's sort of consistent with what you just said right yeah, there. Yeah. So you have options, but mm -hmm. kind of like we do for general 451 as well. Yep, yep, yep. All right, on the polling question, it looks like 24% characterization of transactions, number one, 19% uh, cost offset, 12% debt instruments. So a lot of folks have concerns about you know, a variety of these different things. Um, and again, not, not unsurprising, there's a lot of concerns with these regulations that are brand new here. All right, fifth and last polling question, would you like to receive some follow-up information on the topic today from our panel of experts? 
Well, folks, reply to that. Let me get a key takeaway from everybody on what we've talked about in the last hour. Christy, let me start with you, okay. please. I think, to me, the most significant aspect of these regulations is the failure for the regs to allow the cost offset. So I'd be in that, I think, 24% bucket. Um, because it, it really is getting to the result where you're recognizing more revenue for tax than you are for book. Um, and so I would encourage um, companies to lobby, to write their congressmen, to write the treasury. To, I know um, there are a lot of other you know, groups and practitioners and, and others that are um, in, intending to comment. But it, it gets to, in, in my view, kind of an uneconomic result, um, which doesn't seem consistent with the policy of uh, you know, book tax conformity and, not, and recognizing revenue no later than book. And now we're recognizing revenue in advance of book. Mike? Uh, well, when we first read the statute, we were concerned that it could be interpreted very broadly to, to really sort of undo the OID rules. That if books was accruing something faster than tax was over a shorter period, suddenly I had to look at every single you know, instrument and dig through it. And it could be really quite complex. I think we're, we're happy to see that um, Treasury and the IRS took a step back and greatly narrowed the types of instruments uh, that, that it's going to apply to. And that even took a further step back and are going to do some thinking about you know, what else besides credit card fees should be covered. And so I think the, um, the narrowing of the scope or the clarifying of the scope was something very um, that, that I was happy to see and something I've taken away from it. Great. Kate? I would just say to really consider whether or not you want to rely on these proposed regulations. Um, there are some helpful rules that maybe taxpayers really care about, the carving out of OID and calling that a special method or um, excluding contingent income, but then there's some unfavorable rules, right, like the, the lack of a cost offset. So I think it really depends on your facts and circumstances. So just try to think hard, you know, long and hard about whether or not you want to adopt those proposed regs, because once you do, you're, you are required to apply all of those applicable rules. Mm -hmm. Great. Christy, Michael, Kate, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this Tax Readiness Podcast. If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the speakers. You can find their contact information in the description of this episode. Thank you.